if we're talking about building cities and regions where everybody can succeed, we have to make sure that they can get to the places that help them succeed. I'm Laura Whitley. In this episode of The Next Stop, a conversation about transit equity, where we are today, the key factors that drove infrastructure investments of the past, and the role prioritizing transit equity can play in building communities that provide access and opportunity to everyone. The Next Stop. The Next Stop. The Next Stop. Metro's podcast. I'm pleased to introduce our guest, Kyle Shelton. He is a deputy director at Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research, where he leads research on urban development, transportation, and placemaking. He's also the author of Power Moves, Transportation, Politics, and Development in Houston. Kyle, thank you for joining the next stop today. Yeah, hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Um, and I should point out, our, the next stop has gone remote over the last couple months, and we're doing this uh, via Zoom, so um, it's a whole new world for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Kyle, you wrote uh, in a, a, a blog uh, article published, in a community is invested, uh, how a community is invested in or policed, and all of those choices are tied to broader issues about race, and power and access to decision-making in America. Um, could you uh, frame that concept and focus it a bit more on um, what you found while researching development and investments in public transit in Houston and how those investments are impacted by race and power? Yeah, sure. So I, I talk a lot about the importance of infrastructure to the to the structure of everyday life in, in cities. Um, and I think what I mean most succinctly from that line is the way that our cities are built, the types of projects that are sort of selected for investment and, and maintenance and, and updating are often ones that reflect um, sort of the, at, at a minimum the political uh, balance of power and sort of, you know, whether it's the squeaky wheel getting the grease or, um, you know, a, a wealthier community that's investing more in, um, in political candidates and supporting political campaigns and just generally having a more influential voice in some of those big decisions, you can really, you see that directly reflected in the types of investments that get made um, and who those investments serve. And that's both a historically rooted thing, but it's something that continues to this day. Um, and I think particularly for public transit, it's been a challenge because for so long in American uh, society and particularly in big cities, um, we've devoted a lot of attention and time and resources to, to building car-centric cities, which, um, you know, all, most of us drive cars at this point, right, and have for, for decades. Um, but there are lots of people for whom that access is not possible or for whom the expense of a car is really difficult. Um, and we haven't created opportunities that are sustained enough to make sure that everybody has the same access to opportunities and, and has the same ability to navigate their city. And I think a lot of that is because we've, we've created uh, both policy choices, but then infrastructure investments that really just solely continue to cater to cars and, and to kind of require folks having cars. Um, and then when we look at the work that Metro and other transit agencies are trying to do, um, they're often pretty circumscribed by just the amount of resources that they have available to them. And that's, mm -hmm. that's really rooted in my mind to some of those historical infrastructure choices and spending choices where 
highways have always been deemed a, a public good and have gotten trillions of dollars over the last 80 years. Um, and the amount of spending going to public transit agencies um, pales in comparison to that. And yet we still have the same expectation that um, a transit agency should, should be able to provide the same level of service and convenience and access um, to every resident um, in the same way that our roads do for folks who have private cars. Um, and, and that's just not the case because there's not that level of investment or sustained investment. And that too is a reflection of, of some of the political powers and just the decision-making that we make uh, in our cities um, at, to say like, well, these are, you know, this, these are the folks and these are the constituencies who are probably electing us or whose voices are loudest and carry the most weight. Um, and then that absolutely affects debates around whether or not we invest more um, in, in public transit and all other sorts of things, right? Even just in individual neighborhoods as well. Right. And in light of the um, death of George Floyd and then the um, outcry and, and raised awareness and, and protests uh, that we have uh, seen pop up uh, really around the world um, in calls for improvements in, in equity and racial justice. As I was, as I was personally thinking about all of that, public transit, in my mind, um, plays a role in, 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 that, in that conversation about, you know, next steps and how we move forward. Again, in, 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 in your writing, it seems that, that you've recognized that there is this racial equity piece uh, when it comes to transit investments. Yeah, and I think not, not just transit, but just generally um, when we think about sort of under-resourced and underserved communities uh, mm -hmm. in most American cities, they tend to be low-income and predominantly non-white, right? There are variances, obviously, in, in different places, um, but, and all of that is rooted in more than century-long policy decision-making, um, but, you know, it, it hasn't changed all that much in the, 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 the struggles that those communities are facing now, they may look different, right? So there's, you know, concerns about neighborhood change and um, displacement pressures and, and redevelopment and a lot of historically black or low income communities. Um, and the reason why those communities are susceptible to that are also related to those historic decisions, right? Like the reason why property values are low or why homes are, um, have a lot of deferred maintenance or why there are lots of vacancies or why just even that they're mostly renter households instead of owner um, are all tied back to those other decisions. Um, and the same applies to public rights of way and, and other investments like transit um, where uh, the, the systems that can help support or could help redress some of those issues aren't really supported in the same way. And I think if we're talking just about transit and back to my earlier point about sort of the division and how we think of public transit as sort of not being, it's a service, but it's not something that's framed often as like an essential right or an essential universal right, at least where mm -hmm. I think, I think, I think it's fair to say that for the, for most modern history, of, of urban cities, of American urban, of American urban areas, um, transit has really been seen as like, well, there's this smaller population who needs some form of mobility, let's invest enough in public transit where 
we're giving people some option and there's been very little consideration about the comfort of that, the efficacy of that, the frequency. I mean, and these are, these are all topics that have come up a lot more recently in the last decade as we've started to really redesign and rethink our transit systems. Uh -huh. um, but for a really long time, they were just seen as, well, let's just put this in place. And sure, if somebody gets a bus every hour, that's probably going to meet their need. Um, and no one who has the ability to not waste an hour of their time by sitting at a bus stop is going to do that. Right. And there's an inherently, right. there's an inherently, um, there's an inherent power dis uh, imbalance in power there where you're saying to folks who are reliant on public transit, you're just going to put up with whatever system we give you because it's what you need to move around. Uh, versus kind of doing everything you can and investing everything you can to make uh, drivers' uh, days as inconvenient as as convenient as possible, right? And there, right. I think there's there's an investment argument there in terms of how we think about what transit is and what um, car construct car infrastructure is. Um, and there's no denying that the sh the the unequal access to good, like quality mobility and quality choice also limits access to all a range of opportunities, right? So for folks who are, whether it's an hour long commute in their car or three transfers across multiple bus lines and other public transit system pieces or walking, like folks who don't have direct access to opportunities, if it's healthcare, if it's education, if it's food, if it's jobs, so they're facing worse situations. Um, right. Working to make investments that help close those gaps are really critical. And I think transit is one of those places where um, those types of investments can be made to make sure people have buses coming every 10 to 15 minutes, if not more, right? And that they have comfortable trips and that they have reliable service that gets them to those opportunities. And that's something that I think um, very few transit systems in the United States currently have. And a lot of that, in my mind, roots back to those the historical trends and historical process of underinvesting in what it would take to actually build that system. And, and could you share a, a little bit about some of the, um, the dollars, the investments that you research, particularly, I mean, I, you, you mentioned the highway, you know, investments, the inequality or, or the, or the difference between the level of investment uh, you know, like I'm thinking about uh, the the Katy Freeway, for example, mm -hmm. and, you know, the mammoth project that was and how large it was, mm -hmm. but how quickly it became filled and just the amount of investment of that type of freeway um, versus um, a public transit investment. Yeah, so I don't uh, I don't know the numbers completely off the top of my head. I'm sure, sure. it's order. It's, it is definitely orders of magnitude difference between mm -hmm. even if we're just looking at Texas, the amount of investment in highways versus public transit. Um, another important distinction to make is that almost all the transit dollars or a, a bulk of the transit dollars are local funds, right? So it's not it's not the same mechanism. So states and localities get a ton of federal support for highways and they get much less for public transit and, and other forms of mobility. Um, and so most transit agencies have been set up with a local funding mechanism because that mm -hmm. federal support isn't there, which is also gonna be limited. Um, and and I think, you know, the types of examples we can talk about, you know, so the, the North Highway Improvement Project that they're 
uh, currently considering right now in Houston and has been on the um, the docket here for discussion for a couple decades, depending on how you count right. it. Um, at this point, I think the full project is somewhere between seven and ten billion dollars, roughly. Um, and if you just think about that, that's one that's one big highway project, um, but it's one highway project in the state um, and even just in the Houston region. And if you just kind of think, if you just kind of roughly comparing that to what Metro is doing, the last bond was a three billion dollar bond, right. and that was for a much for a very long time horizon. I think was it twenty years or something like the spending right. for that yeah, is a, is a long mm-hmm. yeah yes. mm-hmm. and so just comparing those two i mean that's that's the entire basically you know capital bond project for metro for multiple years um compared right. to one one highway project um just to give you a sense of comparison um and there are obviously not all of the highway projects are the same scale as the nnhip but there are many others that are also getting into the billions of dollars and Sometimes even just an interchange, you know, is several hundred to millions of dollars to re-engineer and rebuild, um, and so it, it just it just really quickly adds up, and it, it you know it's it's the um, the ongoing expansion of those systems that we've been putting in place since World War II, um, and and all of that, n- the scale of all of that is significantly more than what we do with transit, um, and again, I think sort of the narrative that it, that emerges around transit as a criticism is well, why doesn't it we put all this money into it. Why doesn't it work any better? Or like, why isn't it serving everybody the way that it needs? And I think a, a really big missing piece of that is just an acknowledgement of, yes, we have invested billions of dollars in these systems. Of course, I'm not denying that, but you also have not, there also has not been enough upfront investment or sustained investment to actually create a system that would succeed to the level that critics would want it to. Right. So it's a, yeah. it's, there's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think with, transit spending where we say like oh we can't give it any more money because it's not working well enough and it's not working well enough so we can't give it any more money and it just kind of you know keeps going around in that cycle um and even if you say well if you gave us more money like if systems could develop in a way that they actually can meaningfully overlay and bring in systems that connect more effectively than they currently do and increase frequency and increase reliability that's when you actually would see change and that's when you actually sure. see some of the positive improvements like metro saw after the redesign right it's there are step there are signals that if you make those types of investments and take those actions that you can succeed but transit right. has to overcome this like political perception and just i think a, a sort of like financial roadblock at many levels to get to that in order to do it and it just it takes a very long time it does. It, it, as a matter of fact, um, the, I mean, the historical roots are, you know, when you look back even to the 1950s and 60s, there was a 2017 article uh, that I found uh, written by C.D. Reader uh, with Jobs News America. It was uh, titled, Why Transit Equity Matters. And she pointed out in a testament of hope, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., drew the connection between access to affordable public transit and employment opportunity. Um, And he concluded that urban transit systems were, quote, a genuine civil rights issue. um, And uh, because they weren't doing enough to help poor people uh, access opportunities for gainful, meaningful employment. Uh, And and so, uh, 
we you know when you think about you know how long this has been part of the dialogue and the conversation you know it does continue in terms of that history yeah absolutely and i think uh i already mentioned this in, in passing earlier i think thinking of mobility as the right to access easy mobility as a universal and as a universal right and as an essential right is is an important part of that and that ties into what you're talking about there and that again is about ensuring that no matter what one station is in life what one's income is that they can they have access to me mobility means to get them to opportunities um, is really critical and if we if we're if we're talking about building cities and regions where everybody can succeed we have to make sure that they can get to the places that help them succeed right so right. Um, access to education programs or apprenticeship programs only matter if the students who need those programs can get to them and can get to them reliably um you know because you can think of dozens of circumstances where you know it's sort of a like a huge opportunity for somebody and if they miss one day of work or they miss one training class they get kicked out of a program or you know something else falls apart or they're late yeah um and all those things add up and it absolutely is about i mean you know it's rooted in human dignity to like enable people to get to the things that they're trying to do to live their lives and live their lives comfortably and stably um and it's about quality of life overall right i think you could you know these are two obviously very two different threads of the conversation around public transit but i think they both tie together in quality of life so whether it's like talking about it as an equity issue and access to opportunity or talking about it as just a um transit as a choice and form of mobility in a high quality of life city where people can say i don't want to have a car or i don't want to have to take a car for every single trip or i want to be able to safely walk or bike or take transit in the city um i think there is some common ground between those two which is giving people the options to move through their city in whichever form they choose and feel like a first-class citizen no matter what what form they choose um and so you know whether it's me advocating for um just you know more transit to access more places without having to drive or if it's a person from uh acres homes who's trying to find a uh more reliable way to get to a job downtown or get to a job in the energy corridor or get to an education opportunity like in my mind those are diff obviously very different forms of needs and different forms of advocacy but they share a common a common bond of pushing for mobility options that uh, that fit the, fit any person's need and if we can create right. a system if we create a system that works for the resident from acres home to get to where they need it's going to work for me and it's going to work for my needs um and so that's also i think a part of that connection is that it's not just an either or of like you either cater to you know suburban park and riders coming into major job centers or you cater to folks who for whom transit is like they're one option and they're using it no matter what the delays or what the inconveniences are and you can't cater to both of those that's just not true if you create a system that allows everybody who's reliant on it to comfortably and safely move at the times and the uh, paces that they need you're also by default creating a system that's going to work for somebody who's like more of a choice writer or somebody who's just saying i want to use this when it's convenient i don't need to use it every time but if there's a system that's convenient i'll use it and i'm likely to use it again one thing i've been thinking about as you were talking is is just uh underscoring the importance uh, of providing that access uh, is 
what has been going on during the pandemic and during the stay at home orders, uh, you know, um, Metro has been very intentional to um, make changes to improve safety for, you know, in, in our current health context uh, and facing this public health crisis, but to allow service to continue to operate, um, uh, particularly uh, keeping service uh, running and providing service on uh, the most highest demand routes and, and those serving um, coming into the medical center uh, and other areas. Their Metro is operated has, has continued to operate it and not stopped operating the entire time uh, because there is a real need to get essential workers to mm -hmm. their places of employment. Uh, and those essential workers, you know, run the gamut, everyone from, you know, people working at grocery stores to um, folks that are, you know, helping clean and sanitize to also, you know, medical workers. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, it, and it's been interesting. And it also has involved park and ride, keeping, you know, uh, focusing on certain park and ride routes and also local routes as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's really underscored uh, that point that you bring up. Yeah, absolutely. I, want, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about uh, a concept that you discuss in your book, Power Moves, mm -hmm. and that's um, uh, infrastructural citizenship and how, A, what it is, mm -hmm. uh, if you can help define, and then also how that may play a role as we um, look towards the future and uh, framing and designing and investing in things that the citizenry think will help improve and provide the type of um, access and, and first First class. First class citizenship. First, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so uh, infrastructural citizenship is sort of the theoretical um, keystone of the book, and and the the argument that I'm making, as I mentioned at the beginning, is that um, infrastructure is not often thought of as a as a space of politics and a space of debate um, in the same way that we might consider, obviously, actual politics. Um, or a topic like education or um, even healthcare, right? Like things that are very much in the, in the public consciousness as, a, as a, a realm of political debate. Infrastructure very rarely is put on that same category, mm -hmm. right? Like in a lot of ways, if you actually think about like the, the narratives around infrastructure politics, it's sort of like, oh, well, yeah, everybody will agree on an infrastructure bill, right? So it's actually seen sort of as like a space of compromise. Um, and partially what I think infrastructural citizenship is doing is it basically challenges that idea and says infrastructure is a part of it is it is the surfaces upon which we all live our lives every single day and infrastructure obviously is a huge category i talk a lot about transportation infrastructure but it's also water pipes and sewer pipes and the internet and uh any for you know communications technology there's all sorts of ways that i think you can apply this concept um but i I focus on transportation infrastructure and generally what I mean by uh, infrastructural citizenship is people using debates around particular projects or particular concepts or particular approaches to infrastructure and to planning um, to assert a different vision or their own vision for their city or for their neighborhood. Um, and I'm arguing that those infrastructure debates really 
and and the role people play in them really need to be centered more in the way we talk about not just how cities are growing and changing but how our society in general is um, because the infrastructure networks themselves are so central to how we function um, and so ignoring the back and forth debates and how people assert assert visions for it or have their visions for it ignored is a really critical component of understanding how our cities are shaped um, and i in the book i track it all the way back to world war ii and the expansion of the highways and other pieces and basically the quick arc of it is that i'm arguing that folks have been acting as infrastructural citizens for quite a long time um, and certainly you, certainly you can find examples in by my definition earlier than world war ii um, but the kind of the catching up of federal um, uh, regulations and and the creation of platforms for folks to engage in projects in new ways through NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which puts into place the um, uh, the environmental reviews that major infrastructure projects have to go through, um, which created a platform for residents and citizens to say, no, you know, like the environmental costs of this are too much. You can't, you can't take this impact. Um, over systematically since the 1960s and early 1970s, more and more pieces have been put into place, which gives civilians and non-professionals more oversights over projects and has allowed us to move away from sort of the 50s and 60s version of infrastructure projects where engineers would basically just show up on your door and say we're building this highway bye um right. to now decades of input onto a major project um and right. that doesn't mean that 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 uh campaigns around infrastructure have gotten any more simple in fact they've gotten right. more complicated but my argument is that um that growth of input and that growth of democratic decision making even if far from perfect at this point um is really a critical step to, to watch the transition of and to think about what it means for the future because it does um it does allow folks to influence the decisions being made about their lives and their neighborhoods and their cities in ways that they didn't have access to before so what do you suggest uh for those who want to become more engaged uh, and, and particularly in this topic and, and, and do see um, the importance in um, bringing about more equity uh, in when it comes to investment uh, in, in public transit? Uh, I mean, I think specific to public transit, there are a lot of really great organizations uh, and individuals working every day in Houston and the region to to bring more equity to transit. Link Houston is an organization that comes immediately to mind where advocacy is a central part of their work and advocacy for an equitable transportation uh, system and city that gives people access to those opportunities that we've talked about. Um, mm -hmm. So organizations like Link Houston, where you can volunteer time and get invested and learn about their advocacy and, and approach to this is certainly one place. Um, just individually, of course, if you have feelings and, and desires to see greater investment, you can share that with all sorts of elected officials from city council up to state legislature, all the way up to the federal government, if you really uh, are feeling gung-ho because a lot of those federal funds are what shape what Metro has access to, for example. Um, so certainly talking with senators and congressional representatives across the board is important as well. Um, and then I think just, I mean, probably the, the most simple thing it would be to ride transit um, and to use transit and to talk to your friends and family about using transit and um, 
you know, to see, to, to get to a city where folks have those many options, people also have to use them and be willing to talk about it and talk about some of the benefits and talk about some of the challenges. And um, you don't, you don't have to ride transit every single day and every single trip you make to be a advocate for transit. Um, sure. But it, it certainly helps for you to have a knowledge of what the systems are and what some of the challenges are and, you know, take a, the next time, the next time you're just going to do a quick errand, see if there's a Metro bus that takes you there without too much of a, a, a journey. Right. And, and try it if you haven't done it before, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of personal piloting that we can do to, to better understand what the systems are. And then I do think that helps people be informed for the next time they're asked as voters um, or just as, as residents for input onto a project, they can say, Oh, I remember, you know, this, this was part of the experience I had on, on public transit, or I wished that public transit had been able to do this for me, but it had, but it wasn't. Um, and just being informed in that regard also just gives you that personal stake in it in a way that we can all hear other people's stories about having some of the, confronting some of the challenges they have or having some of the shortcomings of transit. Um, right. Or even just the benefits of it, but until until you have it firsthand, I think it's often hard to really relate to it um, and and to to understand why it is you're supporting something. So I think just the act of of using transit regularly can be a really transformational. Piece. Absolutely, I, I know that I had that experience myself when I started working at Metro mm -hmm. uh, and really started using the system more regularly. And you missed a, a very important plug and read your book. And oh yes, and read my book. Yeah. But really, I mean, in, in all seriousness, it's also about um, understanding understanding some historical context too. I think yeah, is absolutely. helpful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, yes, Kyle Shelton, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, really um, interesting conversation, and um, we appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all for this edition of The Next Stop. I'm Laura Whitley. If you'd like to check out more episodes, you can find them on our website or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or Google Play. Until next time, drive less, do more with Metro.